So today is Sunday. It is August 19th, 2018. I will give you our title in just a second, but I want to tell you that this is the last message in a series on faithfulness. Our first message in the series was faithfulness over time. We learned that faith is displayed best over decades, not moments. Can somebody say amen to that? Faith that moves mountains is faith that persists for 20 or more years, not 20 or more seconds. Our next message was faithful confidence. Man, the love of the Father, the faithfulness of the Father, that compels us towards faithfulness, doesn't it? When you think of the goodness of our God, how can we not want to reciprocate to Him? The next message was when God gives you the finger. It was subtitled, Faithful to Break Stone. This was about the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit who is faithful to change the human heart. Look at your neighbor and say, there's hope for me. Come on now. If there is hope for you, then there must be hope for them too. Then Pastor Piro just gave us an outstanding word, troubleshooting faithfulness. He said, poor connections cause hellfires to consume your life, but good connections ensure that his power flows through you. Faithfulness is your connection. Do you want to be connected to the Lord? You know, right after Matthew preached that, we found a poor connection in the adjoining suite, and it caused a fire when we found it. Previously, it had been unrevealed, but God is revealing things in this church, physically and spiritually. If you have found a problem in your life, he's not revealing it to embarrass you. He's not doing it to shame you, to mark you, or to label you in some way. He is revealing something so that he can heal it. We are a healing church. There has never been anyone that has come in here that did not need that. It's why God brought you here. So when you look around and you see the people around you, if you see something you admire, that's because of God's faithfulness to help them make good connection to his healing power here. Amen? That takes us to today. This message will be called blood-tested faithfulness. Come on now. Blood-tested faithfulness. Our first passage is in 1 Peter 1.18. So you can get there as fast as you can. Today I will probably be moving quickly. So I'll wait on you when I can. But sometimes it will just be on the screen. Take good notes and we will post everything that appears on that screen online for you to be able to download. First Peter moved my heart this week. I got my truck back. Now those of you that are not familiar with that, I have a special bond with this old truck. When it runs, it's amazing. But it's broken a lot, just like me. It's got a lot of character. Meaning there's dents and dings all over it. It's a little rough around the edges. But in the end, it's always gotten the job done. And always on the way to and from Mexico, where that truck was born and probably where it will die. I listened to Don Potter, which is pretty well the only thing you hear in my truck coming out of a Christian artist. And he sings, it's time to get right with God. It's time to get real about Jesus. He is singing my mezuzah. It's from a conference that was in the 90s, early 90s, because I go retro. 
And as I began to sit in that familiar place, doing that familiar activity, the Lord began to minister to my heart. And I started to cry. And I looked around and I was really glad because Elder Bosch was sleeping. Didn't want him to laugh at me. And I looked in the back seat and my son is moved. We feel the presence of the Lord. And it was because of 1 Peter 1.18. So that's how we arrived at this text today. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You know, the NASB says, instead of empty way of life, the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. How many of you remember how futile the life was that you were raised in? How many of you remember how empty it was? Is there anybody brave enough to stay, say you're still in an empty, futile way of life? Because this message is for you too. I remember exactly what it was like to watch a man chase to build an empire, chase to conquest over women, chase to build money. He worked to do everything that the world says will make you a success. And I watched how empty his life was. One divorce, empty. Two divorce, empty. Three divorce, a five-time loser. And Jesus Christ delivered me from that way of life. I've been born into a new thing. As I thought about the precious blood of Jesus, I couldn't help but want to pick on Christian music. We sing these songs that have become children's songs to us. When they were written, they were not children's songs. To say, what can wash me white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It, it began to affect my heart. And not in a good way. If that song's blessed you, I want to be clear. It's blessed me many times in my life. But in this moment, I was thinking about what it means to have the precious blood of Jesus. And why use a word like precious? I pictured Matthew, who has been my lifetime best friend. Loyal to the nth degree. Inspiring in Christ before I was. And I thought about Matthew. And what would happen if Matthew was defending my wife or daughter? And was tortured. And his blood was spilled in this parking lot. Would we call that precious blood? Would we sing about it? As if it were a sing-song, trite kind of thing. What if you were holding your son or daughter who was bleeding out in your arms? Would you call that blood precious blood? See, it's a difficult question. Four or five of you say yes, and the rest are stunned in silence. I was wrestling with that. Is it right for us to say no other fount I know except the precious blood of Jesus? And what does it mean to say that it's precious? 
I began to realize that our theological, emotional disposition can rob us of the impact of the cost of that blood. You think about what the blood does for you, so you don't think about what made the blood precious. You believe the reason it's precious is because of what you get out of it. And it hurt me. I thought the precious blood... Peter was there when his blood leaked out of his body. In what way did Peter mean that it was precious? Precious because it benefits him? Precious because it does something self-gratifying for him? To understand the precious nature of the blood, I'm going to ask you to not jump forward to what the blood does for you. Let's not do that for a moment. Because that's not what Peter says in the verse. He literally points us to the right direction. He says, without blemish or defect. He doesn't say the blood is precious because of what it does for you. He says it's precious because he was a lamb without blemish or defect. See, we have been preached to so long as a society, it's precious to us only because of what it does for us. It's precious if it did nothing for you. It's it's precious because of its very own nature. Peter points us to the foundation of its precious nature because of the precious nature of the one from whom it flowed. I want to show that to you in Luke one thirty five, a familiar scripture. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you. Have you ever wondered to yourself, how does, Peter, how does Luke know this? You know, Luke is not there. He wasn't there when the angel talked to Mary. So how does he know it? He says at the beginning of his book that he made a careful search to write an orderly account. I bet he sat down with Mary. She was in the upper room. She got filled with the Holy Ghost just like the others. Mary, tell me, I'm a doctor. How was your son born? Have you ever considered that? Like, I was speaking with a brother in this church with whom we like to wrestle with the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And he expresses it one way and I'm convinced he's saying the same thing I am. I express it differently and he thinks we don't agree. But uh you have the right to be wrong if you want to. We'll give it a little time. I believe that Luke had a peculiar interest. He wanted to know in what manner was Jesus conceived. And so he must have asked Mary. Mary apparently told him in verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now you've read this enough. You've seen this on postcards. You have them on Christmas cards. It's probably on a nativity set somewhere in your attic right now that your husband does not want to get out again next year. And because of that, we miss something. We miss something incredible. Do I have every person's attention in this room? Raise your right hand if I have your attention. Raise your left hand if I have your attention. You are halfway to being Pentecostal already. (laughs) Listen to this phrase. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One. Somebody say the The Holy One. One. 
You know, this phrase doesn't drop out of a vacuum. It didn't come from a nothingness in space. It originated from the very mouth of God, breathed onto the page. Do you know this is a unique phrase in human history? There was never before born a holy one, much less the holy one. I know you think your baby is an angel. Trust me, they're not. As soon as they're old enough to speak, you'll ask them, did you go to the bathroom in your pants? And that beautiful little angel will look at you and lie to your face. As soon as he's old enough to have an ice cream cone, and you give an ice cream cone to your neighbor's kid too, your child will want both ice cream cones. They are sinful from birth, steeped in sin from birth, and that is not what is said about this child. He's not called a holy one. He's called the holy one. So the holy one to be born will be called son of God. Now, if that didn't get your attention, let me take you on in a theological sense for a moment. This phrase and its grammatical construction occurs 39 times in the Tanakh. That's the 39 books of the Older Testament. It occurs 39 times. All 39 times, do you know whom it refers to? The Father. Every single time you see this construction, 39 times, friends, there's only 39 books. It refers to the Father. It occurs six times in the Newer Testament, the Brit Hadashah. One time is the Father. That's in the book of Revelation. All other five times, it refers to Jesus exclusively. The Holy One. Can anybody put two and two together there? Can you put 39 and 6 together and come up with 45 references to the deity of Christ? You probably can. The way that Jesus was born makes him precious. There's never been one like him. Your child is amazing, but your child is steeped in sin from birth. Jesus was different than every other human being that has ever been born. Next, the phrase overshadow you. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You could deduce so many wonderful things from that. When the Most High exerts his power, it is vis-a-vis the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the power of the Most High. But that's not what we're speaking about. This phrase in Greek is iperchome. It is followed by a phrase epi. Those two words only appear together a handful of times in the Bible. It's a unique phrase. It literally means that the Holy Spirit is resting upon the person that is being referenced. It means uh, in unique speech about the Bible, uh, in the Bible, that the Holy Spirit is enveloping this person in some way. Only two times in all of the Bible is this used in reference to the Holy Spirit and a person. Only two times. The first is right here. Would you like to know where the second is? I'm not going to tell you yet. You'll have to hang on to that. I want to talk to you about the precious nature of the blood of Christ. It's precious because of the way that he was born. That he was without blemish or defect. But it's precious in a whole other way. Do I have anybody in here that likes Science Channel? Anybody in here that 
can watch a YouTube on the way things are made and get excited. I'm about to tell you how Christ was made. You interested in that at all? Medical science helps us out a little bit with this. It's an aid to our understanding in exactly how precious the nature of the blood is. The lifeblood of the Holy One who is conceived of the Most High Father by way of the powerful Holy Spirit. See, for years, there have been questions in humanity about paternity. It presented a significant challenge for scientists and potential parents alike. During the first half of our 20th century, researchers often turned to a method called ABO phenotypes. This could only be used to rule out a potential father. I want to show you what that looks like. Usually, husbands, if you're in the dark about this, trust me, your wife, when she gets pregnant, she learns about it. This means that a mother and a father can only produce a child with a certain blood type and that you can slide down a chart and exclude somebody as a potential father. You know, that doesn't tell you who your father is, though. That tells you who your father's not. I remember... Recognizing this for the first time, and I didn't know what my parents' blood type was. And I wondered whether I should ask what the mailman's blood type was. It doesn't do you a great deal of good to to know who your father is not. So the scientists kept working. Consideration of additional blood markers such as RH antigens and MN antigens and HLAs greatly increased the effectiveness of paternity testing over the next few decades. But it still left a little room for error. This brings us right into our time. Somebody say, our time. In our time, the Lord has opened up something. He's allowed us to discover the way that it works in a unique fashion. And it's the DNA. The blood of the Father and the Son are inextricably linked through the DNA. The blood of the Son has in it specific markers as blood from the Father alone. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? By DNA sequencing techniques, scientists can look into the Father's genomes when questions of fatherhood arise. This approach, along with our current marker-based methods of analysis, yields a 99.999999% effectiveness. That's pretty effective, isn't it? Think about what this means. Jesus' father was God, and his father's DNA was literally carried in his blood. Jesus was not ordinary. He was human, but he was conceived of the power of the Most High. Somebody say conceived. So whatever markers would go where the Father's markers go in a man's DNA, this would not be Joseph's DNA. Whose DNA would it be? The faithful Father. Well, that's an easy thing to say. But how do you know that it's true? The faithfulness of the Father and of the Holy Spirit was inside of Jesus, and he is going to prove his bloodline by way of a blood paternity test. Man, when you don't know, a blood test will solve it. I know people that have some question, and they're like, no, there's no question. Just look at them. 
But they have a question. I'm like, get the blood test. No, there's no question. Then go get the blood test. No, there's no reason to do that. Then why do you have a question about it? And they put themselves in agony. Jesus actually solves his paternity issue with a blood test so that you will not be left in agony. Do you want to hear the results of his blood test? Are you sure? Before we get into the blood test and the second scripture about conception, I think you need to know a little bit about the word of God. The more you know about the word of God, the more it will make sense to you that the word of God has become flesh and you'll know what DNA markers to look for in the son's blood test. To start with, this Bible in your lap, hold it up in your hand if you have one in your lap. That book was written over a 1500 year span. It had 40 authors. They came from every walk of life. There were kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and scholars. Moses was a political leader. He was trained in Egyptian universities, but Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua, a military leader. We already said that Luke was a doctor. Daniel, a prime minister. Solomon, a king. And Matthew, a tax collector. Most of the Bible comes to us through a Jewish rabbi named Paul, who was also a lawyer. And yet, we see a scarlet cord running through every area of the Bible, and it's identifiable in Jesus' life. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any book in history. There's over 8,000 copies every single single hour of the day and the night, 365 days a year being printed around the world. Somebody say that's a bunch. With all of that, the word of God is flawless. Despite all of its critics all over the world, all of the people that say that it has no power, all of the people that say that it contains fiction, all of the people that say it's just allegory, no one has ever been able to prove it factually wrong. That's pretty outstanding, don't you think? It was written on material that perishes, yet it has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. You can go to Israel today in the shrine of the book and see copies of Isaiah from the first century, even though it's been 2,000 years. Nobody can do that with the work Julius Caesar's. You can't do that with the histories of the world. You can't do that with the Odyssey or the Iliad. There is in existence today over 5,300 copies of the Greek New Testament that date to the first 120 years. Is that incredible? Altogether, there's in existence more than 24,000 manuscripts or copies of the New Testament from that time. No other document in antiquity even comes close. I mentioned the Iliad by Homer earlier. There's only 643 manuscripts in any language contained everywhere from antiquity. Compare those two things. Which one is trustworthy? The Bible is trustworthy. The thing is, the blood-tested, faithful son is the star of every book of the Bible. Every page of the Bible. Every chapter of the Bible. He has been reviving the souls of men just as Psalm 19 promised that he would for more than 2,000 years. That in itself is the beginning of a paternity test. Does the son do what the father does? Consider that in Genesis, 
We'll put these on the screen for you. He's the crusher of the serpent's head. In Exodus, he's the conqueror of the gods of Egypt. In Leviticus, he's the culmination of atonement and the expiation of sin. In Numbers, he's the recompense to Korah's rebellion. In Deuteronomy, the revealed prophet Moses spoke of. In Joshua, he's the ruler and the captain of the Lord's host. In Judges, Barak's war cry. In Ruth, Boaz's boldness. In 1 Samuel, the bravery that bested giants by boys. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. Jesus Christ is the superstar of the word. If you get to 2 Samuel, he's the deity behind David's defeat of Dagon's puppets. If you get to 1 Kings, he's the devastation that befell Jezebel's prophets. By 2 Kings, he's the demolisher of the deplorables in Elijah's fire. All saints, do you want to keep going? If you make it into Chronicles, he's the ark that can fit in a tent. But he's also in 2 Chronicles, the glory that can fill a whole temple. In Ezra, he's the God who can resurrect it all again. By the time you reach Nehemiah, he's the restorer of a nation. In Esther, the preservation of the people. In Job, the arbitration of the Almighty. Have you ever needed a mediator? In Psalms, he's the arm that can bend a bow of bronze. In Proverbs, the advisor that teaches us victory. In Ecclesiastes, the administrator of man's earthly duty in a heavenly war. How many of you were there Friday night when Pastor Piro told us God is at war? Ecclesiastes tells us God is at war. In Song of Solomon, his love is stronger than the grave. In Isaiah, it's Jesus whose wrath cannot be stopped. In Jeremiah, he's the one who shatters nations. In Lamentations, he's the renewal of our hope. In Ezekiel, he's the revival of dry bones. We got a prophecy about that today. From a father in this church, the father spoke by way of his spirit and told us in another tongue that was interpreted that we needed to begin to believe the impossible. In Daniel, he's the rock that envelops the earth. In Hosea, he's the passion of the jealous husband. In Joel, he's the power of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's the possessor of David's tent. In Obadiah, the rewarder of deeds, whether good or bad. In Jonah, the resurrected one. In Micah, the reigning king in Israel. Is there not a hand for the king in Israel? In Nehemiah, Jesus is our avenger. In Habakkuk, he is the apex warrior. In Zephaniah, he's the all-consuming anger against our ancient enemies. When you reach the last of the minor prophets, in Haggai, he's the shaker of nations. In Zechariah, the slayer of the wicked. And in Malachi, the son of righteousness. That's who our king is. You want to know whether or not he passes the paternity test. Can you insert him in any passage about the Father and it makes sense? Jesus in our newer testament is no different. The 27 books highlight his achievements. In Matthew, he is the victorious king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the successful servant of the Lord. In Luke, he is the son of man. In John, he is the son of God. Do you love the Son of God? As we move on to Acts, He's the ascended Lord. In Romans, He's the believer's right standing. In 1 Corinthians, He's their sanctification. In 2 Corinthians, He's their sufficiency. In Galatians, 
He is the believer's freedom. Do you want to be free in Christ? If you're holding your Bible, you are holding your ticket to liberation. He is the exalted head of the church in Ephesians. He is the Christian strength in Philippians. He is the fullness of the deity in Colossians. He is the believer's comfort in Thessalonians. And he is their glory in 2 Thessalonians. He is the Christian's preservation in 1 Timothy. He is their rewarder in 2 Timothy. He is the blessed hope of Titus. He is the substitution of Philemon. He is the high priest of Hebrews. Do you need a high priest? Is there anybody in this house still dealing with sin? Well, Jesus is our high priest. In James, he's the giver of wisdom. He's the rock in 1 Peter. He's the precious promise in 2 Peter. He's the life in 1 John, the truth in 2 John. He is the way in 3 John. Jude portrays Christ as the advocate. Revelation shows him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's our King! He's not just a chip off of the old block. He's a chip off of the block that fills the world. His work is unparalleled. There is no one like him. As the destined and now revealed King of kings and Lord of lords, his blood was and is precious. Not just because of what he does for you, but it's precious in its own right. As you consider his blood tested faithfulness. Think on the ways that Jesus has shown his paternal heritage as a faithful son. Somebody say faithful son. Jesus was a faithful son. Do you know what you're called to be? A faithful son. One more time. A faithful son. He was faithful. Part of his paternity test shows up in his dependency upon the father. When you think of the Lord of glory walking around as God on earth, it is a little bit of a misunderstanding. He laid aside that glory. He took on an earthly human nature. Jesus did not walk around knowing all things. Jesus did not walk around able to do all things. Jesus was not a genie to grant your wish. He says so. You may find that surprising, But in John 5.19, he says it clearly. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing. Somebody say nothing. Nothing. By himself. See, he is fully human. He is limited in every way that a human is limited. Philippians 2 teaches us that clearly. He laid aside his glory. He laid aside those things. He also takes it back up again, but we're not at that place in the story. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. What can Jesus do? Only what he sees. Come on now, solamente. Where you at, Ray? Only. No additions. No subtractions. Only. The son was so dependent on the father that he only did what he saw the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Anything that the father does, the son does. Isn't that the first marker in most paternal tests? You want to know, 
is the son bearing the similarities of the father. You know, throughout history, there have been some pretty strange surprises. A few years ago in England, a couple of one race had a child of another race. It's possible in, in human genetics. That is a possible thing to do. But those were surprise, surprise parents. You know what they ordered? A paternity test. A blood test. You know, it is not possible in the kingdom for you to be born of a different race than Jesus. It's not possible. Everything in the kingdom gives birth according to its kind. Of course, what the first story also illustrates is there's no such thing as a difference between the races. There is only pigmentation of our skin. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. Notice the beauty and the symmetry in this passage. The Son only does what the Father does. That sounds like a limitation, doesn't it? Except everything that the Father does, He shows the Son. And that's what the Son does. You want to know what the Father is like? All you have to do is see what the Son does. Because the Son is a perfect reflection of the Father. He never does anything on His own. He only does what the Father does. But the Father shows Him everything that He does. Jesus is the full picture of the Father. In your temptation to think that Jesus was walking around as God. So this was easy for Him. That idea is in direct opposition to the testimony of the scripture. The faithful father was Jesus' only source as a faithful son. Jesus was only able to do what the father told him to do. He was fully dependent on him. As I've mentioned, Philippians 2 teaches us that he laid aside equality with God. He became as normal As any sinless man would be normal. But a sinless man is unique in and of itself, as we've already pointed out. So he's exactly like you, and he's nothing like you. The Bible is full of paradoxes. Now that he's glorified, it's easy to see the faithful son is just like his father. But it wasn't always easy to see. It would require a paternity test. One taken in his blood. As he approached that day, look at Matthew 26, verse 38. Say there when you were there. If this subject matter doesn't stir you up, then we need to call the paramedics. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father. Somebody say, my. That's possessive. My father. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Friends, this is a paternity test. If he is his father, then he must obey him. If he is not his father, then it will show up because he will not obey him. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. They are struggling to pass the paternity test. 
He is passing it. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Consider the agony of this paternity test. Jesus was a faithful son. He wasn't just faithful in his death. He was faithful every day of his life. Why is his blood precious? It's not just because it shed for you. It's because for 33 years he lived in perfect subjection to the Father. Never one time did he choose the desires of a human body over the desires of the substance that was inside him. Not one time. How precious is that? It's precious because he's blameless. It's precious because he's without defect. It's not just precious because it gets you what you want. The selfishness in the American gospel is incredible. It's incredible. It causes us to miss the beauty of our God. He lived in dependency upon the Holy Spirit every day. He didn't just live in dependency upon the Father. He lived in dependency on the Spirit of holiness. Somebody say Spirit Spirit. of holiness. When you make the Holy Spirit a title, you are missing the function. The function of the Holy Spirit is to be the Spirit of holiness. He is God's power to cause you to be holy. So if you speak in other tongues, but you are not holy, you may have had a manifestation of a gift, but you are not operating in the power of His holiness. Jesus lived every day in perfect submission to the Holy Spirit. Look at Luke 3.21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Why was Jesus baptized? Because he was operating as an anointed man. He is more than that. He is the Holy One. But he is also Fully a human being. He set aside his great glory. And he became just like you and me. With the exception of sin. So he was baptized. And he was praying. Heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him. In bodily form like a dove. Jesus is not only the deity in bodily form. But the the deity itself descends on him in bodily form. And Jesus, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It is incredible that the first thing that is said from the Father in heaven to Jesus is, You are my son. The paternity test was not just answered in his death, it was answered every day of his life. In Luke 4, it's the Holy Spirit that leads him into the Judean desert. Later in the same chapter, Jesus stands up in his hometown and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Do you see? Jesus didn't choose where he wanted to go. Jesus didn't preach what he wanted to preach. Actually, he did. He wanted to preach it. But he preached what the Holy Spirit showed him to preach. He did what he saw his father doing. He lived and operated exactly as you and I are supposed to live and operate. Romans 8 clearly says those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So does Jesus pass the Holy Spirit paternity test? 
He is faithful. He's been faithful in a way that no other anointed man ever achieved. The fact is attested to by the statement in John 3.34 that he had the Holy Spirit without any limitation. His sinful nature never got in the way because he didn't have one. Why was the blood precious? Because it came from someone who was precious. Not because of what it does for you. That's a secondary benefit. His blood would be precious even if you were damned. In fact, it's been precious for 2,000 years in the face of the onslaught of the multitudes being damned. That didn't make His blood any less precious. His blood is not precious just because of what it does for you. It's precious because His blood carries the markers of His Father. Notice that the first thing that the Father says about Him is, You are my Son. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in bodily form was there as a second witness that this is the Son of God. Maybe that is why the Father spoke from the law, the prophets, and the writings in affirmation of the faithful Son at the baptism and at the transfiguration. We just read from the baptism, the transfiguration is in Matthew 17 and verse 5. Y'all awake? Are you interested? Matthew 17, 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. That's interesting. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you hear that there was an addition? This is different than the baptism. There are words added to this statement. Every time a revelation comes from heaven to earth, it grows. Every time the Lord speaks, He never undoes what He said previously. That's a capricious satanic God like Allah. The God of the Jews, the God of Israel, always builds on what He said previously. He never takes away from it. So what did He add? The words, listen to Him. At this point... If you don't know it, there is a rabbinic teaching called stringing pearls that apparently God was very familiar with. Maybe that's how the rabbis found out about it. Because he starts off by saying, this is my son whom I love. This is a direct quote from the law of God in Genesis 22. Abraham took his son, his only son, and it implies the entire passage when he quotes part of it. What is Genesis 22 about? It's about a son who is loved by the father but would be sacrificed. The next part of the phrase that he quotes is, with him I am well pleased. What is this a direct quote from? This is the first verse of Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is about someone who is anointed of God to bring His justice and His holiness to every nation on earth. Do you think that the Lord was aware of the context that He's quoting? Which begs the question, what is listen to Him about? What what is that from? Well, listen to Him is really kind of a bonus. It's Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is about a king who is God's son who will rule the entire earth. Specifically, it's verse 7 and 8. It's as if God was affirming his Bible, law, prophets, and writings, and he was speaking to his son, and he was affirming his son, saying, this is the word of God. He is my son, and you must listen to him. Do you want to listen to it? Can you hear what I'm saying today? 
Can you feel the truth of what I'm saying today? Your Bible is reliable. The Son of God is faithful. He will pass the blood test. Somebody say faithful son. This takes us to circular validation. Circular validation is a marred slide. <laughs> it's no problem. I can walk you through it. The idea is that the Tanakh predicts Jesus. Where does it predict Jesus? Where does it not predict Jesus? I showed you he's in every book. But let's just take some major ones. How about Genesis 22, where we mention the son sacrificed? How about Isaiah 53, where we see the suffering servant of the Lord who is pierced for our transgressions? How about Psalm 22 that has more quotes from the cross than any one gospel has? It predicted Jesus. When you look at the predictive features throughout the Older Testament in Micah, he's Predicted to be born in Bethlehem and Zechariah that he would be a king on a donkey. Also 30 pieces of silver he would be traded for. Also that those 30 pieces of silver would be used to buy the potter's field. It was also said in Zechariah there would be wounds in his hands. In Isaiah 53 it was said that he would offer no defense even though he was innocent. By the time you reach Psalm 22 it literally says that he would be crucified. Those are eight times in the Tanakh it Jesus' life completely. And Jesus endorses the Tanakh completely. In Matthew 24, 44, he says, It was written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. And he explained it to them. What this means is that you can trust the Tanakh because Jesus is what the Tanakh predicts. It means that you can trust Jesus because he is what the Tanakh predicts. That is called circular validation. The Newer Testament quotes the Tanakh 165 times directly, not to mention all of the indirect references. It's almost like the Father wanted you to know, this is my Son. He is everything that was spoken about in the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. You must listen to Him. But how could you know for sure that He was the Son? Maybe he just looks like him. Maybe he just acts like him. Well, you're going to need a blood test. That brings us to Jesus' mission. Jesus was on a singular focused mission. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Why did he come? To seek and to save. If the Son only does what the Father does, what does that mean about the Father? He is seeking to save the lost. Did Jesus say that to a woman at the well? My father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. In fact, we find out that the father's desire and the son's desire are expressed in the ministry of Jesus. Most people can quote something about John 3.16. For God so loved the world, when he loved the world, what did he do? He sent his son. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that he would be a ransom for all men. How many men? How precious must the blood be? You know, maybe if he was a good man, it'd be precious enough to ten people. A really good man, maybe a thousand. But precious blood to everyone on earth. You know, 
He wanted to save the world. He would have to pass a blood-driven paternity test to do it. Before you think this was an easy thing, wrestle with Luke 9.51. At that time, I'm sorry, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Why did he have to be resolute about going to Jerusalem? Do you know what the actual text says? What the idiom that is being translated out says? If this were written in Hebrew instead of Greek, as I imagined that it was originally, this would have to say he set his face as flint. He set his face like a rock towards Jerusalem. Why? Why did he have to do that? Have you ever known that something was going to be so difficult? Something was going to be so painful? Something was going to be so emotional and spiritually tragic and damaging that the only way that you could face it is to think of nothing but it and just walk headlong into it? That's the way that Jesus had to approach Jerusalem. He knew exactly what was going to happen there. He wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't surprised. It was his chance to prove the faithfulness of his blood. When we sing about the precious blood of Jesus, what are we singing about? Are we recognizing the agony of the man and the joy that he expressed in the midst of it every day of his life? Or are you only thinking about what it does for you? You get to thinking about the true nature of his blood and you'll start thinking about what you can do for him. As a faithful son, he would have to obey his father, even if it killed him. And it killed him. How many times have I heard from a Christian? I'm crucified with Christ. I'll die for the Lord. You can't even put up with an offense for the Lord. How many times? I'll be there forever, Pastor. Didn't make it a month. How short heaven must be for you. You might not have to worry about it. The sacrifice of the son was blood-tested faithfulness. The sacrifice of the son is everything. When you are thinking about the sacrifice of the son, perhaps we should look at John 10, 17. The reason my father loves me, isn't that a great reason to know? I mean, why have you ever, like David mused, what is man that you are mindful of him? What? What gets the Father to love you? The reason my Father loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again. You mean the Father loves someone who will obey to the point of laying down their life? Jesus goes on in verse 18, No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. In the example I used at the beginning, Matthew defending someone's son or daughter and spilling his blood in the parking lot. Matthew's not, he's defending them willingly, but he's not giving up his life willingly. Trust me. If you think you're going to take Matthew's life from him, you better pack your lunch. Jesus didn't fight. He didn't offer a defense. He knew what was in Jerusalem. He set out resolutely for it in obedience to his father because every step he took proved that he was in fact the faithful son. Say faithful son. son. You mean how you walk determines whether or not you are a faithful son? 
He said, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Look at his hopefulness. Look at his faith expressed in the midst of agony and and what some would see as tragedy. He knows what he's in for, but he also knows what God's loving kindness will do in the midst of it. Come on, are you in a trial in this church? Are you having difficulties? You have authority to die to the trial, to die to yourself, to die to your expectations. But you also have authority to take up the expectations of God, the work of God, the anointing of God. You have a chance to be a faithful son. Jesus shows us how to pass a paternity test. The blood is precious because it represents his choice. He made that choice for you, for me, for this world system. Are you making the same choice for him? He chose to give his life for you. Have you chosen to give your life for him? Or is it only lip service? Do you promise well on Sunday and Wednesday? But Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday are an entirely different matter. Because he chose it every day. Somebody say, that's precious. precious. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is an incredible scripture. Jesus was faithful as a son even when he was charged with your sin. The scripture says God made him who had no sin to be sin. Why? For us. Let's get this very straight. The perfect son of God, born of the spirit, the holy one. He was charged with your nastiness. Every time you've ever disobeyed. Every time you refused to submit to an authority. Every time you ever lied to save your face. Every time you ever looked at something nasty. Every time you ever did something selfish. That was pinned to him as a blood test for his faithfulness. He actually was considered something not the Son of God so that you could be considered the Son of God. Now, in what way do we declare His blood precious? It is a sweet, cutesy little precious? Or is it an incalculable value? Does your life show that you value it like that? In what way is it actually precious to you? In the way that you're making the same choice He made? Do you die to your desires and do only his desires? Because he died to every one of his. He only did what the Father said. Are you beginning to see how rare the blood of Jesus is? The holiness of the Father demands your death. You need to understand that. You sin, you die. That's what he said. It's what the word says. His character's never changed. But the love of the father caused him to pour the full fury of his wrath on his son, even though you deserve it. That's incredible. You have a perfect son who never once has remotely disobeyed you. And then for a wicked offspring that actually was fighting against you and your purposes. You punish the faithful son in the place of the wicked one. Who does that? 
That is the love of our Father. So next time you're talking about it's covered under grace or it's the mercy, ask yourself exactly what that means to you. In what way is his blood precious? It makes me think about the way we sing and the way that I talk about it. Is it precious theologically? Or is it precious like a father covered in the blood of a son? Because I can tell you one of mine got stabbed. And when I was covered in his blood is the only time I can remember in my adult life I wasn't sure my nervous system could handle it. Precious blood. The blood is not cheap. It's precious. Your sin caused the most faithful son in history to suffer the wrath of his father. How dare we use it selfishly? How dare this be our get-out-of-hell-free card? John 10, 37 is how he proved that he was a faithful son in both his life and his death. He says, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus could say, don't believe me unless you see me doing what the Father does. Which human being can you say uh, can do that? Well, maybe on a good hour, maybe at a good crusade. Maybe at an anointed prayer meeting. But how many of you are, are confident that you could say, do not believe me and let you, unless you see me do what the Father does for the last month? Y'all are very quiet. And yet the apostles did say, you know how holy, righteous, and blameless we were when we were among you. Do you see the disconnect? Do you see our hesitancy to call ourselves faithful sons and our willingness to say he was a faithful son? We believe that because of his goodness, it doesn't matter how wicked you are. And that is a damnable lie. It's because of his goodness that you ought to be inspired to imitate him. It's because of his faithfulness that you ought to stand up and say, I want to be a faithful son of God. You ought to tear your clothes when you sin. You ought to hate it. And instead, what I get as a pastor a lot is, you know, I don't really know what happened. That makes me want to sin. You know, it's like it just, like I tripped and it just happened. Oh, it tripped and you produced a child, huh? How about that? Like it was just a mistake. It's just a weakness. Well, your mistake and your weakness killed the most perfect son, the most faithful son there has ever been. And he willingly did it to cause your behavior to change. To totally transform your nature. To give you His nature. Do I have your attention now? What the uh, faithful son's achievement was, it's hard to even describe. I'll take just a few scriptures to do it. How about Revelation 5 and verse 9? And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Oh my goodness. They will reign on earth. He purchased you when he passed his blood test. 
He didn't just prove that He was the Son of the Father. He also proved that He was an acceptable sacrifice in the place of every wicked thing you had ever done. How you ought to value that sacrifice. I know you could go to Christian James Avery and you could buy a pretty little cross. It would be precious. Put some ashes on your forehead. It would be downright Roman. Or we could look at that faithful son and say, I have to die to my nature and I have to take on his. His life was so precious, I have to have his life and I forfeit mine for his. Are you beginning to feel the real power of the gospel? It's not to help you a little bit. It's not to improve your life. It's not to make you healthy, wealthy, successful and make all your dreams come true like a vote for Pedro. It's to take your dead, sick, twisted, wicked ways and tear them out of your soul and replace it with the righteousness of God in Christ. How does one speak of the achievements of the faithful, blood-tested Son of God? A pastor named Lockridge helped us out a little bit. He said, he is the ethnic king of the Jews. He is the national king of Israel. The God and king of all men, king for all ages. He is the king of heaven, the king of glory, the king of other kings. And he is the Lord of lords. He is a prophet before Moses, a priest after Melchizedek, a champion like Joshua, an offering in the place of Isaac, a king from the line of David, a wise counselor above Solomon, a beloved, rejected, exalted son like Joseph. How do you describe our king? He's far more than that. The heavens declare His glory and the firmament shows His handiwork. He who is, who was, and who always will be. The first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Tav. The A and the Z. He is the first fruits of those who sleep in the dust. How do you describe the faithfulness of the Son? He is the yod heh vav He is the Logos to Theos. He is the I Am that I Am. The voice of the burning bush. He is the Savior and Israel's salvation. He is the captain of the Lord's host. He is the conqueror of Jericho. His achievements are beyond recounting how precious is His blood. Somebody say, He's a faithful son. He is ever-present. He is enduringly strong. He is entirely sincere. He is eternally steadfast. He is immortally graceful. He is imperially powerful and impartially merciful. How special, how sweet is that? In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. The ancient writers said, The very God of very God, He is our kinsman redeemer, He is our avenger of blood, He is our city of refuge, our performing high priest, our personal prophet, and our reigning king. Is He your king? Is He your king? He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He is the fundamental doctrine of theology. He is the supreme problem of higher criticism. He is the miracle of the ages and the superlative of everything that is good. How would you describe him? He is a faithful son. 
We are the beneficiaries of his love letter. It was written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea 2,000 years ago. He was crucified on a cross of wood. And he made the very hill on which it stood. Come on, that's our king. We cannot speak tritely about him. We cannot fall into theological, vomiting, repetitious speech. Do you love him like I love my family? Do you love him like I love Matthew? Do you love him like a real, living, faithful son? Or is he an idea that you ascend to? Do you know him like I know him? Is your relationship with him like my relationship with him? Are you passionate about living in Him? Do you have trouble containing yourself when you talk about Him? Is He part of your life or is He all of your life? Do you know Him like I know Him? Because He was a faithful Son. And when we say His blood is precious, He's not precious like a puppy. He's not precious like a a nice greeting card. Your husband got you on Valentine's Day. He's precious because He was perfect. He's precious because He marred that perfectness for you. He's charged with your wickedness. I asked some of my friends about Him last night. I woke up unannounced. Nicola Aragina, what do you love about Jesus? Nick reached for his Bible. He read this passage from 1 John 2 and 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus the Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does Nick love about him? Nick said, I love his advocacy. He said, I hate what is inside me and I'm trying to kill it. But when it raises its head and I'm ashamed, Jesus is right there. And he said, no, 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 this one, he belongs to me. My blood test applied to him. Oh man, how precious is that? I worked my way around the room. I could feel people tightening up and yet I was excited about what they had to say. Bosh! What do you say about King Jesus? What do you love about Him? Bosch said, Colossians 2.9 For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. He said, Eric, I love His ability to bring things to completeness. He said, I know where I fit. I have a place in the kingdom. He's the head of everything and all I have to do is follow Him. Keith was sitting next to me talking about not wearing flip-flops anymore. I said, be quiet, Keith. What do you love about Jesus? Keith's eyes began to wet. He said, I just read Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach the throne of God with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Keith looked at me, all pretense of lawyer dropped, and he said, he's approachable. I can understand him. It's like I couldn't wrap my mind around God, but in Jesus I can. My eyes turned to Linton next. 
said, Lynn, what do you love about Jesus? Lynn said, how do I narrow it down to one? He started to quote Isaiah 63. I said, tomorrow's a New Testament message. He said, I've got to find it in the New Testament. I said, it won't be hard to do. He said, Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Lynn began to share with me. He's relatable. Eric, he shared in our flesh and blood. He knows what it is to get hungry. He knows what it is to be tired. He is relatable. Wow. You guys really love Jesus, don't you? I was waiting for my youngest son last. I said, Gabe, what do you love about Jesus? Bracing slightly. Without hesitation, Gabe gave me law prophets writings. I said, tomorrow's a New Testament sermon, son. He said, I have that too. I said, tell me in the morning. He said, I have it now. I said, I don't want to hear it now. Contemplate it. You're too fast to answer sometimes. He contemplated it all night. And he came this morning, he said, Matthew 14, 28, Lord, if it's you, if it's you, tell me to come out of the boat. And Jesus called him out of an ordinary boat and into a supernatural life. And I began to say, my God, Charlie, my son gets it. We're leaving the ordinary. Jesus is calling us to something more. I said, he gets it. He was dead and he's alive now. This is a faithful son. We have to leave the ordinary. We have to go to the extraordinary. No more living in sin. It dies now. The son of God passed the blood test. You know, when you think on these things, and I say, what do you think about it? You ever get in one of those moods where you just, uh, y'all don't. Well, Larissa might. See in that pretty little red dress over there? You ever get in one of those moods where you're like, my blood's running hot and I just want to fight. Maybe you don't. I do. I still got a, a lot more whatever that bloodline was in me. Someone, someone might say to you, if Jesus' blood achieves so much, If Jesus' blood was so precious, if He really was faithful, if He really is the Holy One as you say that He is, then why after 2,000 years is the world so bad? If His blood is, is so precious, then why is sin so prevalent? After 2,000 years, why are we still moving the wrong way? If He came to save the world and He succeeded as you say. You ever just want to pick a fight? I'm imagining it. This conversation didn't even happen. But I'm ready when it does. Good sir. You're familiar with soap? Yes. And soap has been around for roughly 2,000 years? Even if you work at the soap factory, you're still dirty. Being around soap doesn't do a thing for you. Oh, it has the power to remove dirt from your body. But what do you have to do? 
You're going to have to reach out. You're going to have to grab hold of what it can do. And you're going to have to apply it to your life. Why is the world the way that it is? Because we're not reaching out. We're not grabbing hold of what is ours. You're going to have to grab hold. You're going to have to apply it to your life. You can't sit on your salvation and grow fat spiritually. You're going to have to fight. When Paul said he fought the good fight of faith, friends, it's an actual fight. You may never have experienced it. I know what it is to be locked in a small room with men that wanted to kill me. I know what that is from a much earlier age than a man should know what it is. When you are fighting for your life, can I tell you it's not precious? Thought they were going to charge me. Let's not even tell that story. When you're fighting for your life, you do what it takes to win. Are you fighting for your spiritual life? Are you just sitting back saying it's precious? You're going to have to fight. It's worth it. He fought and won every day. It's worth it. You're going to have to fight. Say, well, I love that little soap analogy, Eric. That was, that was cool. But we were talking about a blood test, weren't we? We weren't talking about soap. I mean, soap's cheap, isn't it? What does it cost to make a bar of soap? Three and a half cents? If they put a picture of a dove on it and tell you it's for your face, then it's much more than that. My wife has got soap for her hands, soap for her feet, soap for her face. My sinful nature makes me clean. Even my beard with that soap. We're not talking about soap. We're talking about a blood test. I preached a New Testament message today for all my critics. You just don't have enough emphasis on the New Testament. You just don't understand the Older Testament. (laughs) Uh, I want to be very positive today. Let me talk to you about what Peter compared the precious blood of the lamb to. This is Leviticus 8 in verse 23. Moses slaughtered the ram and he took some of its blood and he put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward and put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, on the the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then he sprinkled blood against the altar on all sides. Consider that you could not be a priest unless you passed a blood test. The blood had to come from a, a spotless animal. And now we're called to a higher priesthood. And the blood that has already been tested and found to be of the DNA of the Father has got to show up on your ear, on your hand, and on your foot. Do your ears pass the blood test of a faithful son? Well, how can you know? Well, how did you know if Jesus passed the test? Do you hear like Jesus wants you to hear? You know, he didn't listen to the devil, do you? He listened to the voice of his father. Do you? Do your ears pass the blood test? Do you dwell on that which you should discard? And you do you discard that which you should deposit? Do your ears pass the blood test? 
How can you be born of the Father in heaven if your ears do not pass the blood test? Maybe, maybe you need to retake the test. How about do your hands pass the blood test? Do you do what the Father in heaven does? Or do you only say that you do? Do you only aspire to do it? See, because Jesus' hands did what the Father's hands did, do your hands do what Jesus' hands did? Oh, maybe you need to retake the hands test. How about your feet? Are you where Jesus says to be when He says to be there? Because there's never a time, not once in the Scripture, when Jesus was not where His Father said to be. In fact, many times He said a time is coming. It's now come. When such and such will happen. Because he was where the Father said, when the Father said. How about you, saints? Are you passing that test? Or do you still go where you like, do what you like, and listen to what you like? Because that doesn't pass the blood test. It's an interesting thing, though. In a former life, I knew what it was to beat a drug test. Now, that was never a problem that I had. But everybody that I hung around with, including the people that I was born to, had that problem. And if I'm not clean, I might have to borrow a certain fluid from a clean friend. And that's how you pass a test. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. Don't act like you don't know. It was poppies. It was just poppy seeds. It If you didn't pass the ear test, if you didn't pass the hand test, if you didn't pass the foot test, you know what? You need to get in touch with the one who did. He's the faithful son, and he will lend you blood that causes your ears to hear his word, that causes your hands to do his will, that causes your feet to do his will. Maybe you are failing the test because you have failed to ask your substitute. Now how precious is that blood? See, it's not precious only because of what it does for you. It's precious because of what it is in and of itself. The fact that it does something for you is secondary. Consider something, church. Jesus treated you just like a son of God. He taught us to pray just like he did. Our father, not my father. Whose father? See, He's treating you like you are a son, like you're in the same family, like you have been given His merit. He entrusted His work to you. Go into all of the world. What He didn't finish, He left for you to do. He's treating you like you were a faithful son, even when you're not. What does that cause you to want to do? It ought to make you want to rise up. Rise up into faithfulness. He gave His church to us. I I wouldn't have done that. I have a hard time giving a service to somebody. He gave the administration of the church to men that were far less faithful than He was. But He knew what they could become. I'm preaching like this to you. 
Because our Father is faithful, then that ought to make you want to be faithful. The Holy Spirit is faithful to change hearts, and that ought to make you faithful. The Son of the living God is faithful beyond description, and it ought to make you want to be transformed into a faithful Son. Do you want that? He promised us greater work than what He had done. Man, you would think that he sinned when he said it. Because it certainly hasn't seemed to be true. Because we haven't yet reached all of the potential that we have. When his blood is applied to our ears, to our hands, to our feet. When you die to your life and when you become faithful as he is faithful. We will shake the world for Jesus Christ. Hey, do you remember that whole thing where I was talking to you about the Most High overshadowing you. Iperchome epe. It's a unique phrase. It's only used in two places in all of the Bible where the Holy Spirit is overshadowing or coming upon a person in this way. Only two times. You know where the other one is? In Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, Iperchome Epe, you, overshadows you like He overshadowed Mary when He helps conceive in you a faithfulness and a power that is not of your own, it's the DNA of the Father. See, He will overcome you in a way that calls you out of the boat and into the supernatural. He will overshadow you in a way that causes you to leave the old life behind and walk to a new. You're going to have to be overshadowed in His Holy Spirit. Now don't get nervous, ladies. I'm not talking about you getting pregnant. Well, I am. Pregnant with a promise of God. Pregnant with a ministry of God. Pregnant with something that He will birth out of your faithfulness that is meant, well, to create faithful sons on this planet. you got to be washed in His blood. And then you have to be anointed of His Spirit. There are no shortcuts. There are no other ways. It's not based on your age. Not based on your tenure. Not based on your birthright. Not based on your personal merit. You are diseased stuck. It's based on His merit. His birthright. And the application of His righteousness in exchange for the death of your wickedness. Friends, you cannot have both. You cannot both cling to the wicked ways that you have lived in, the empty way of life handed down to you by your fathers, and claim the precious blood of Jesus. you got to choose. you got to choose which it is you're going to live to, which it is you're going to die to. There's a choice before you today. Just like Jesus had a choice in the garden. Maybe it's not an easy choice for you. It wasn't an easy choice for him. Hebrews puts it this way. Chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. 
He is the eternal source of salvation. He is the Holy One. The faithful Son now stands at the right hand of God and He can grant life to those whom He chooses to reveal the Father and grant life. And do you know who He chooses to do that for? Those who crucify their empty way of life. Those who join Him in death so they may be united with Him in life. There is no other way. You cannot hang on to your life and grab hold of His. You have to let go of your old life to grab the new. Go back and give yourself the hearing test, the hand test, the foot test. Stop making excuses. Stop thinking along the lines of cute theological treaties and ask yourself about the precious blood of Jesus. Are my ears actually working through the blood of Jesus? Or are they working on their own natural merit? Are my hands actually doing the work of Jesus? Or am I doing my own base natural instincts? Is my feet carried by the Spirit of Jesus? Or am I still doing what I like when I like? Too long the body of Christ has tried to claim the precious blood of Jesus in their theology only where it's not actually practically in their lives. As for me, riding in my truck that evening, source of great comfort and encouragement and great distress to me. My truck resembles a teenager. I have the greatest hope for it at times and at other times the deepest despair about it. It's a Ford. And I chose that. And I still choose it. There's a certain life in the fight. There's a certain joy in repair, in restoration. Nobody likes it when things break, but you know what you like less? When you pretend things don't break, like Dodge owners. Second Corinthians 5.14 is our last text today. We're going to have an altar call. And we're going to let you respond as you feel led to respond. And then when it seems like the church is right with God, when it seems like those that have been overshadowed in His Spirit are the real thing, something new is conceived in them, something born of heaven in them, when it seems like those who have claimed to love for the Lord, are actually living in the righteousness that they say they're credited with. When it seems that we're right with God, we'll take communion together and we will celebrate the burial of the old nature, the crucifixion of the old nature, and the glorious, resurrected, faithful Son of God that He is and we have become. Our last text for the day. For Christ's love compels us. What does it do? Do you feel compelled? I'm trying with all of my heart to compel you. For Christ's love compels us. I have no means of compelling you. I have no power to compel you. 
I'm surprised you show up week after week. I've been surprised for 16 years for that. I'm flattered. I love it. But I'm surprised. What compels you according to this verse? Christ's love. If you are getting saved because you are scared of hell, that is not real salvation. It's real damnation. You're realizing that you're damned and that's good. That's real. Let me assure you, right right here, man to man, man to woman, clear, straight on. If you are not in love with Jesus Christ, you will burn for an eternity. But salvation is more than that. It's more than escaping hell. It's when you feel compelled in your inner being because of His faithfulness to cry out to the Spirit of holiness and say, birth faithfulness in me. If you could create a body for the Word of God inside of Mary, Iperchome Epi, will you overshadow me and create faithfulness where none exist? Will you empower me so that I can become a witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? Will you give me your blood so that I can pass this blood test and you will advocate for me? The order is first the blood, then the Spirit. That's the only way priests were ever anointed and it's the only way that you can be anointed. If you want His anointing, but you don't want His death, then maybe I should tell you the way that it worked when I was a kid. In the groups that we hung out in, if you wanted to hang out with us, it was blood in. And you know how the rest of the phrase goes? Blood out. I'm not endorsing the practice. I'm just telling you it's the way that it works. You took a beating to be a part of the club. Because it was worth it. And if you left the club, you took a beating. Do you know how the kingdom works? It's blood in and it's blood out. His beating earns your entrance into the fraternity of God. The family of God. And the way that you enter into it in reality is when you suffer alongside him and are faithful to the point of death. Blood in. Blood out. You may think you can sign a decision card and raise a cowardly pinky. But if you will not die for him, then you certainly will not live for him. Jesus lived and died as a faithful son so that you would hear this, die and live as a faithful son. We're going to take a little bit of time here now. We're going to put you on the spot with your choice. Some of you need to reapply blood to your ears because you've been listening to a stinking, lying, crap weasel of a devil. And it shows. There's nothing this church admires more than repentance. You're not a marked man if you repent. You've become a marked man when you refuse to repent. Some of you need to reapply the blood to your hands. You're saying the right things. You know how to make the right declarations, but they're not showing up in your action. 
And some of you are doing the work of God and you're hearing the work of God when you're where he tells you to be, but you're rarely where he tells you to be. It's time to be all in as a faithful son. What that allows us to do as a body is count on Jesus. Count on Jesus working in you and know that we will conquer any enemy that comes our way. This is the day that life-changing ministry reclaims our children. This is the day we expect to win. We don't just grit our teeth and bear it anymore. But for that to work right, it has to work right in your life, not just your pastor's. So when we stand to our feet, you do what you need to do. When the church seems to have reached a place where the Spirit is content with what is happening, we'll take communion together. It is my strongest desire that you're compelled by the love of God and we can leave this building totally united. Not one grudge. Can you tell that I'm sharing with all of my heart? Don't withhold yours from me or from the Lord. Stand to your feet.